This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Solomon Success Show, where we explore the timeless wisdom of King Solomon and the Bible as it relates to business and investing. False prophets and get-rich-quick schemes are everywhere. Let's not be distracted by these. Instead, let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman. It's my pleasure to welcome Trent Griffin to the show. He is a Senior Director of Strategy at Microsoft and also author of Charlie Munger, The Complete Investor. Trent, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Good, good. Where are you located? Here in Redmond, which is a suburb of Seattle. Seattle. I didn't want to assume that, (laughs) so that's why I asked. But you're right in Seattle, right in the heart of it, or Redmond, actually. So how did you come to write this book? I mean, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are close. What got you interested in Charlie Munger and and writing the book about the complete investor philosophy? Well, what happened to me was the internet bubble. And the internet bubble was a strange time. And what happened during that period is sort of reality got suspended. And I didn't really know what to make of things. I knew there was a lot of wealth, but I didn't know whether it was real or not. And so to ground myself, I took a think week and I took every book I could find. A lot of books about Buffett because I thought he was grounded. And when I read about Buffett, I learned about Munger. And Munger was the guy who sort of really interested me most. He was most like me. And so as a result of his guidance and his way of thinking, I was able to make a decision to sell a lot of my stock at a very good time. And so in that sense, he's my hero and and benefactor, and he's made my life better. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Good stuff. You did your stock play, and that's all good. At Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Warren Buffett's philosophy, of course, is value investing. Can you explain to the listeners what that really means? And we're going to dive down, and I'm really excited about this in the, uh, the our discussion today. We're going to dive down and, and show how this not only applies, of course, to investing, but also to life in general. Tell the listeners about value investing. I mean, what really is that? We've We've heard it thrown around. Give us the definition of it. The essence of value investing can be boiled down to, first, is a stock is fundamentally a proportional share in a business. It's a partial stake in a business. And so to understand the stock, you need to understand the business. You shouldn't treat it like it's a baseball card or a piece of paper to be traded based on whatever people's opinion are. If you understand the business, you understand the stock. If you don't understand the business, then you're not a value investor. The second principle is basically margin of safety, which is you needed to buy asset is a discount to value. And to buy at a discount to value in the value investing sense means you need to buy it at a, a discount to intrinsic value, which is basically the net present value analysis. You know, it's based on fundamental bottom-up analysis. The third principle is Mr. Market, which is the market is not wise. The market offers you a chance to buy and sell assets every day and should never let it convince you that it's wise. It's your servant, not your master. Mm-hmm. And the final principle, which is applicable to everything in life, which is learn to be rational, learn to be dispassionate, and look for sources of bias. So in a nutshell, that's value investing. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So does value investing mean you're always in the in it for the long run, or does it uh, just mean that you follow those principles you just mentioned? Value investing is, is fundamentally based on a sort of a thesis that value and price are very different things. And over the long term, those things tend to align. But over the short term, there's substantial differences between price and value, particularly in some assets. With the value investing mindset, you're looking for basically a situation 
where price is a lot less than value with a significant margin of safety, and you buy the asset. And the key thing about value investing is buy and wait. It isn't a timing mentality. You look at the asset. If the asset's selling at 70 cents on the dollar, you buy it, but you don't count on it turning around in a week or a year or even three years that eventually the asset will return to its real value or in excess of, in excess of its real value. And Mr. Market will determine that. So Seth Klarman, who is one of the great value investing personalities, says buy to bargain and wait. That's the essence of value investing. Right. Okay. So really, by the very nature of it, it's not a quick play. It's not a day trade. It's not a flip. This is something you need to you need to wait for that alignment to occur. And we've certainly seen cases where many asset classes, of course, we're not just talking about stocks here, uh, real estate, businesses, smaller businesses that aren't publicly held. I mean, many times they're out of alignment with the market. Uh, of course, that's true in art, collectibles. That happens all the time. That's where good opportunities can lie. How do you um, bring this into life in general? Talk to us a little bit about that. We'll talk more about investing, which I, I definitely want to do, but I, I'm just anxious to get your thoughts on how this applies in life, uh, You know, whether it be raising your family, making decisions, wh whatever. Investing is really fundamentally about making good decisions. And we all need to make decisions in our lives in many, in many contexts. And the Munger philosophy of decision-making is, is very instructional and broadly applicable, which is what you want to do in life is have a two-track process. And the two-track process is, is really quite simple. The first track is try and make the most rational decision you can. You use multiple models, you examine it from every angle, but you try and be rational and dispassionate because most mistakes are emotional and psychological. The second track is you basically re-examine your decision and say, are there sources of bias which may have caused me to make an irrational decision? And they can be because you care for the person who was advising you or because of loss aversion, all of the things that arise because of heuristics, which we have, which are described in a, a discipline called behavioral economics. So be rational, look for mistakes in your thinking process, and that's applicable broadly. It's in relationships with your kids or your spouse or your work. That's a sound way to make decisions. It's also a sound way to invest. Why do you call your website 25IQ? I'm curious. Well, it's very, these days, anybody who's in business finds it very, very hard to find a short, memorable URL. That's for sure. And I was looking, <laughs> if you actually go through the process, naming a company these days, you're using Qs and Zs and misspelling and whatever. And so it was, it was actually four digits and it was available. So that's the short of it. IQ is, is obviously a little bit memorable, but yeah. it was available is the short answer. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay, good, good. Talk to us a little bit about the markets in, in general. And, you know, in your book, you have a chapter uh, called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. People just follow these crazy trends and speculations, and it always amazes me how people fall for these bubbles, you know, whether it be tulip mania uh, or anything since or, or before, I'm sure, too. What do human beings do that causes them to, to misjudge things? The key to investing is to find a mistake. This is what Howard Marks says, is when you find an asset and, it, and it's mispriced, somebody somewhere has made a mistake. And the good news is for investors is people are always going to be mispricing assets. So there is an ability to outperform the market. The bad news is the people who are, are trying to, to find a mistake will also make mistakes. 
And so it's sort of a contest, who's going to make the least mistakes? And the inevitable part of it is Charlie Munger, as good as he is, Buffett, as good as he is, they're going to mis- make mistakes. You just need to make less mistakes than the other guy. And one way to do that is to study mistakes, particularly your own mistakes, so you can learn to make new mistakes, not repeat the old mistakes. And so it's a relative process. And so searching for certain sources of bias, loss aversion, anchoring, there's a whole chain of dysfunctional thinking that leads to mistakes. For example, in in Tulip Mini or whatever, one of the strongest is fear of missing out. This is when I found Munger, and this is when I was in the middle of the internet bubble, which is the key thing about the internet bubble was everybody was afraid if they didn't buy this stock that their brother-in-law was going to be richer than they were or whatever their greatest fear was. And so it just drove the stocks higher and higher and higher because people thought, well, if I don't buy this stock, I'm going to miss out. And so FOMO, or fear of missing out, is just one example of a psychological or emotional mistake causing misvaluation and mistake. Yeah, yeah. FOMO is something that if uh, people listening have not heard that acronym, it's commonly used in the context of uh, human psychology in other parts of life, uh, especially social media nowadays, because people look at their feeds on Facebook or wherever and they think, oh, gosh, I'm missing this. I'm missing that. And certainly people have thought that way in the real estate market, the stock market, every market. You know, it's always that. Certainly gold and metals have done that to people many times over the years. So that, that fear of missing out, is uh, it's a big factor. In fact, I'd say it's much more powerful. Maybe you'd agree with this, by the way. It's much more powerful than the desire for gain. That fear of loss is a much bigger motivator, I think, than that, oh, you know, there's an opportunity I can make money versus, oh my gosh, everybody else is doing this. If I don't jump in, I'm going to miss out. That's more powerful, I believe. It's extremely powerful. And the way Buffett puts it, and Munger's described this, is that it's really envy that makes the world go around. It isn't greed. It's envy. Mm -hmm. And when you see your neighbor with the car or somebody with bouttheglobe.com at six and went to 97, it just drives you nuts. And, you know, one of the key ways to not make mistakes or actually make fewer mistakes is to really try to stay away from envy because envy is one of those things that nothing good comes from envy at all. You know, it's the one sin that's no fun. You know, there's no upside to it. It's mentioned several times in the Ten Commandments. You know, it's just something that's just all downside. So if you can clear that out of your brain, you're clearing FOMO out of your brain to a significant degree. So envy is something really to lead to the side. Envy probably has, you know, an ego component to it. I get, you know, I'm certainly by no means a psychologist, but, you know, I would assume that it's a motivator too. Maybe it uh, creates progress. Uh, no, I'm just playing devil's advocate with you. Well, so if you go through the negative heuristics, you know, all of them, loss, aversion, anchoring and all that. At one time in psychology, they had tremendously positive evolutionary, you know, advantage. For example, overconfidence. One point, something had to get you out of the cave to hunt that saber-toothed tiger, right? And your odds may have been not so good, but if you just stayed in the cave, you were going to starve, right? Right. And so humans naturally are overconfident. Humans are also naturally overoptimistic. Those are, from a societal standpoint, extremely advantageous. From an individual standpoint, in a modern economy, not so much. So you get somebody who's like picking stocks or picking funds or whatever, they're much more optimistic about their chances. The psychological studies show that people are much more optimistic after they pick their stock or they pick their fund than two minutes before when they hadn't picked it yet. 
it's just a natural human tendency. But a lot of these tendencies were designed for a period in time that is not now. It was designed from when we were running around uh, on the savanna someplace trying to avoid being eaten by some large mammal. I assume that's because people rationalize the decisions after they make them. But of course, some get buyer's remorse, though. I, I guess that works both ways. Well, all of these heuristics are potentially contradictory. Mm-hmm. And so what you have going in your brain is a soup of contradictory. You know, have overconfidence and yet you have loss aversion. You have all these things. And that's why human beings are so complex and so impossible to predict, which makes markets impossible to predict in the short term, mm-hmm. is that there are all these things fighting each other. And which one wins at any particular time is impossible to determine. And then, of course, we're also influenced by what other humans do. Humans like to do what other humans like to do. And so if everybody's buying classic cars, then everybody's buying classic cards, or you know, the classic one is baseball cards. At one point, you know, they reached ridiculous amounts, but everybody was buying them because everyone was buying them until they didn't, and then it just falls apart. Yeah. But trying to time that peak is a loser's game. It's a mug's game. Humans are too complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And that's why value investing, I think, wins the day. You know, it's just really a, a solid philosophy. I personally like using that same philosophy in the real estate markets. I'm not much of a stock guy at all. And, you know, that actually leads me to a question for you. And I don't know if you cover this at all or uh, even give it much thought, frankly, but I'll just throw it out there. What do you make of all the graft and corruption on Wall Street and, uh, these uh, company execs paying themselves big bonuses and the shareholders getting lousy returns and, you know, them skimming the profits off the top. You know, I, I got to think that Munger and Buffett are very attuned to that kind of behavior uh, and, um, you know, uh, really want to avoid investments and in companies that executives and boards exhibit it. But just thought I'd ask. Most of those problems are caused by what's called an agency problem where the person who's managing or the person who's selling doesn't have the same interest as the investors themselves. And so what Munger and, and Buffett do is they work very hard to make sure that the alignment of who they're investing with is very aligned with what they want to do. So for example, when someone sells them a business, jewelry company, brick manufacturing company, they love the manager to continue to run the business because they know that person loves the business more than perhaps they love their own families. The other thing is they like the investors who are selling out to retain significant stakes. So there's alignment of interest. And usually when there's fraud or corruption, it's a situation where the executives or the managers don't have substantial buy-in. So for example, in, in my case, I particularly like investing in companies where the founders, where the people running the company are still involved and have been from the beginning and have a substantial stake. In that case, their interests are aligned with your interests. I also like situations where I'm dealing with a professional money manager where they're working by the hour and not based upon how many transactions you do. And so I like fee-based advice that's hourly based because it aligns interests. And so one of the things uh, that I talk about in my book, uh, Charlie Munger, The Complete Investor, is that you want a situation where the manager is aligned with your interests, where their interests are your interests. And looking for that is always powerful. One of the things Munger says is he's been doing all of this for decades. He always underestimates the power of interest and the power of self-interest to basically motivate behavior. And so when you say uh, you call it an agency problem, I just call it a conflict of interest. That's the same thing, right? A fancy way of describing a conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. In other words, where the loyalty lies, where the agency lies. Yeah, uh, good points. What other things do you want to share with our audience? Just uh, maybe a question I haven't asked you. Well, you know, I think one of the key things 
about value investing is you really have to make a fundamental choice. Are you going to be willing to do the work? If you're not willing to do the work, you should buy a diversified portfolio of index funds. Now, you still have to make decisions. You still have to choose the funds. You still have to choose when you do your rebalancing. There's still investing decisions that need to be made. But a lot of people would rather be playing golf or swimming or hiking or whatever it is. And if you spend more time picking out your refrigerator than your stocks, then you're probably not going to be able to outperform and you should basically be a person who, who participates in the market through indexes. If you're willing to do the work, if you enjoy learning about businesses, if you're willing to read about investing and, and read annual reports, then it's something that you can think about. Most people won't do the work. And that's why they should be in Vanguard or one of these low-fee index fund positions. But if you are willing to do the work, then you can be an active investor. Most people can't, and everybody needs to look into their own heart decide whether they can. Yeah. What do you think about alternative investments to the stock market? I know that's where your primary focus lies, but you know, like I said, I, I love income property. I'm a real estate guy. I like owning houses and apartments and stuff like that. How do they compare? I mean, you look at Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and just incredible track record over the course of years. And I also want to ask you about, you know, what's going to happen someday when Buffett steps down. I mean, he's he's getting up there. But what do you think of the rest of the investment world? Or or do you just not even think about it and really it's all about stocks? I do think about it a lot. Yeah. But it, again, in the book, I have another section of the book where I deal with a concept called circle of competence. Mm -hmm. And I believe in that very strongly. And for example, let's just take the area that you say you like. Mm -hmm. I think it's very domain specific. In other words, there are areas where you know a lot. Mm -hmm. And you can get really smart if you do the work. So I have a friend who owns a lot of uh, buildings in downtown Seattle. Mm -hmm. And he's done extremely well. But he won't invest in a town 50 miles away or in another city like Seattle. He just knows the Seattle market. Right. He knows prices. He knows everything. And he, he does extremely well in real estate because he stays within his circle of competence. Right. So if you're going to know real estate, if you're going to know, it's not my thing, but let's say you're going to know classic cars, you should really, really know classic cars. Right, yeah. You should, re whatever it is. Yeah, pick it and, and know it really well and be a specialist. Yes. There's a, yeah. a saying in poker, which is, if you sit down at the poker table and you don't know who the sucker is, it's you. <laughs> yep. No question about it. So you kind of made me think as you were talking, you made me think back to the 60 Minutes interview, uh, I want to say a little over a year ago with Michael Lewis, probably familiar with his books. It's great author, Flash Boys being his last book. And, and on 60 Minutes, he's telling, you know, the whole world there, he says, Wall Street is rigged. The little guy can't win. And you mentioned that circle of competence, and I think that's an excellent advice. I'm wondering, though, when it comes to Wall Street, because it's such a giant institution and there are so many brilliant people playing in it and so many financial engineers and Michael Lewis, of course, talked about the high frequency traders. Can you possibly have more competence than any of these people or the machines, the robots that are really doing the trading? I mean, no matter how smart you are, you can't trade faster than you know, nearing the speed of light, which is how they're trading with these algorithms. That's a somewhat new development in, in the world of Buffett's tenure, which is very long. Thoughts on that? Yeah. The key point there is the Munger Buffett philosophy that I talk about in my book is about get rich slow. And so somebody doing high frequency trading doesn't affect the value investor. In other words, if you're day trading, if you're in and out, you're the sucker at the poker table. If you're buying a stock, don't 
hold on for a long time, the fact that they're jumping in and out really doesn't affect you one way or the other. So as long as you think long term, that stuff doesn't really affect you. I mean, the advantages of value investing are two fundamental. Number one, you don't need any special inside information. You're acting slow. You're making very few decisions. The fewer decisions you make, the better. And then the other point is the speed advantage completely goes away. You know, Buffett doesn't have a Bloomberg terminal in his office. You know, some of the great value investors don't have Bloomberg terminals in the office. They're not in and out of the market. They move slow. They move deliberately. They hold longer for longer periods of time. So that sort of new technology, which allows a lot of speed, it doesn't bother them at all. They, they view it as a hindrance. It's a source of fees for a lot of people. It's a source of costs and expenses from their standpoint. So their philosophy is get rich slow. Right. Yeah. And that's a good philosophy. You know, that's the reliable way to do it. It's amazing when you when you just live a few years and you go into a few deals yourself where you think you're going to get rich quick. You see people you know doing it. By golly, you wait four, five, 10, 20 years and you see how the people with that mentality that instant gratification mentality, they just never do very well, it seems like. It's always the person who's the, you know, it's the tortoise and the hare, right? We should have learned that from that fable a long time ago. That's actually a parable that both of them use, the, yeah. the ant and the grasshopper, too. You know, getting rich slow is, is, Charlie has this funny, the book is, Charlie's a very funny person. And the reason he's funny is because he talks about the truth. And one of the, the things he talks about is meeting young people. And young people will look at him and say, well, Charlie, I want to be as rich as you, but I don't want it to take so long. And unfortunately, that's just not possible. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> good points, good points. Hey, so so what's going to happen with Berkshire after Buffett steps down? Uh, you know, I mean, he's, uh, how old is Buffett now? About 83, 85? He's up there. He's in his 80s and, and Charlie's in his 90s. So yeah. the key thing is there'll never be another Warren and there'll never be another Charlie. Uh -huh. But they've built a culture which has created a series of assets which are sort of a nice diversified portfolio and they've identified who his successor is going to be. And his successor will never be as good as Warren at allocating capital. But it's still an excellent and sound investment. So I've got a big chunk of my portfolio in Berkshire, and, and I expect it to continue. But yeah. the reality is there'll never be another Warren Buffett, ever. Yeah. And there'll never be another Charlie Munger, ever. Well, that, that may well be true. That may well be true. Just curious, and I, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, because you are a value investor, so you don't stress out on day-to-day, week-to-week, or even month-to-month -month things, which I think is the right way to play it. Agree with you there. I, I, I've seen a lot of people get very stressed and ruin their lives over looking at the market every day. And, you know, it just totally affects their whole psychology. Very few people take that into account as a cost of, you know, your investing strategy. What does a share of Burke uh, cost nowadays? Uh, you know, they've got the class A and B. I'm curious, where is it at nowadays? You know, <laughs> One of the great things about it is I don't even know. Yeah. And I can't even remember the last time I looked at the individual price of, of one of my shares. Yeah, right. In other words, I trade such that if I have one or two good ideas a year, mm -hmm. that's a pretty darn good year. Right. So I can't even tell you. You know, I can look it up, but honestly, I don't even know. I know it's probably close to 200000 but I, I honestly don't even know. Yeah. And that's the way value investing is, which is, you pick a name and you study the name and you really get to know the name and then you watch and you watch and you watch and occasionally you will, you will hit a price where you'll go, wow, it's time and you buy it. And then you, you don't forget about the company. You follow it intensely. 
but you really don't think about the price of the share itself. Right. And so the one thing about Berkshire that's sort of unique is he doesn't split the stock, so the number gets really, really high. Mm-hmm. But the important thing is I'm not checking the market every day. I'm not checking the, the market every month. And if you ask Buffett, you say, well, what's the stock market going to do in the ne- next year? He'll say, I don't know. Hmm. I really don't know, and yeah. it doesn't really affect what I do. I think over the next five or ten years, the price of stocks will go up because I'm bullish on America. I'm bullish on business. I'm bullish on the economy. I'm bullish on the world economy. I'm bullish on you know whatever it is that's long term. But on the short term, he just says, I don't know, and I don't even try to predict. Yeah, right, right. And I think I think that's a much better way to look at it than the way most people do. It's speculation is highly overrated. <laughs> but it's also, it, it's bad for your heart. It's bad for oh, your stress level. That's what I was saying. That was my point, is that it causes divorces. And if you want to see something costly, just get a divorce, you know? I mean... <laughs> There's the old joke, you know, the, the quickest way to double your money is to stay married. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, <laughs> good point. And, and and the quickest way to become a billionaire in the airline business is to start with two billion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. yeah good point. Same good joke. Point. Hey, um, give out your website, Twitter, anything you want people to know so they can find you and find out more about your work. Well, yeah, if they actually want to follow me or get a sense of whether they would like the book, they can go to www.25iq.com. And every Saturday I do a post. I have for... 138 weeks in a row. So if they want to follow me on the web, it's 25IQ. They want to follow me on Twitter, which is the only social media I really do. I'm at Trend Griffin, T-R-E-N-G-R-I-F-F-I-N. I have about 13,000 followers there that, that I like to interact with, and that's a fun group. So those are the two places. I have a day job. I don't get drive all of my pleasure from investing, but I do a lot. But on weekends and evenings, I'm available at those places. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I do want to ask you about your day job for just a moment before you go. What's going on at Microsoft? What are they working on? And, and what's kind of some of the big, you know, just the big broad initiatives? I'm sure there's a lot of secrets you can't tell us, but I thought I'd ask you generally. Well, you know, the, the thing about Microsoft is I really can't talk about it because it's my day job. Mm-hmm. And I know lots of stuff that I can't talk about, but I can say it's a super exciting industry to be in. Uh, if you talk to both Buffett and Munger and you say, you know, basically, what would you do if you were 20 years old today? Uh, even Stephen Schwartzman and people like that say, well, I'd get involved in the technology industry because there's so many smart people. It's so interesting. There's so much change. There's so many developments. And the fun of my day job is is in all of that. You know, it's quite a bit different from my, my investing world, which I do on nights and weekends. And here's one of the, the last things I guess I'd leave your viewers with is that one of the great things about value investing is you can't have a day job. You can't have a life. You can mm-hmm. be retired. Right. You have to devote. You can have a marriage. To it. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right, yeah. As opposed to some day trader who's in and out and in and out and mm-hmm. in and out. Value investing is about being patient, moving slow, making very few decisions. And so that's consistent with having another personal life, you know, skiing, golfing, whatever. It's also consistent with having a job as a plumber or, a, you know, a contractor or whatever or a real estate investor. Yep, I agree. Good stuff. Uh, It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. Forgive me, I'm probably not going to get this right exactly, but I think you'll like it. And it is this. Successful people make decisions quickly as soon as all the facts are available and change them very slowly, if ever. Unsuccessful people make decisions very slowly and change them often. 
think that's a big difference. And I don't mean successful people are really impulsive. You know, that quote says, as soon as all the facts are available. So they study something, they learn it, they make a distinct decision, they do it, and they stick with it. I would hope you agree that that is uh, along the lines of the value investing philosophy. I do, and I think Charlie philosophy. would too. He's, Charlie's got a slightly sort of derivation on that quote, which he mm-hmm. basically says that there's this strange paradox and that the, the best investors are people who are patient and aggressive. And what he means is most of the time as an investor, you should be doing nothing. You should be patient. You should be working. You should be learning. Mm-hmm. You should be reading like crazy. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, every once in a while, an amazing bargain comes around. And at that point, you need to be aggressive and pounce. And so does this weird combination of patience and the ability to jump in when there's a real bargain. You're a real estate guy. You obviously know that in 2009, if you would have acted at the right time, that was oh, a great time. To oh, yeah. And many, many of our clients did. And they, boy, you know, 2009, 10, 11, you know, even now, it's not tapped out yet. But... You know, it depends what market you're talking about, of course, uh, what, you know, what city across the U.S. But that combination yeah. of patience mm-hmm. and being, you know, industrious and reading and reading and reading. You know, the thing I love about the cover of my book is, is Charlie describes himself as a book with legs sticking out, which is, you know, you really, even though you're not doing a lot, you should be learning a lot all the time. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. Trent Griffin, thank you so much for joining us. Very good. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc., exclusively.